she speaks. Oh, speak again, bright angel, for thou art as glorious to this night, being o'er my head as a winged messenger of heaven unto the wide upturned wondering eyes of mortals that fall back to gaze on him when he bestrides the lazy puffing clouds and sails upon the bosom of the air. Oh, Romeo, Romeo, <laughs> wherefore art thou, Romeo? The most famous line that begins the, the second act, uh, I mean, the second scene from the second act of Romeo and Juliet. We've all heard it, right? Oh, Romeo, Romeo, wherefore out thou, Romeo, where are you, right? Except that's not what it means. It means, why are you Romeo? And what in the world does that mean? It's the most famous line from a play written almost 430 years ago, and nobody actually knows what the world Shakespeare was talking about. Nobody knows. Why? Because it doesn't make any sense. Because the problem with Romeo isn't that his name was Romeo. It's the family name that's a problem. And the problem is that there's a dispute between two families. And so it's not, why are, why are you Romeo? It should be, why are you a Montague? Why, why that? Why, why this conflict between the Capulets and the Montagues? Why, why can't you be from a different Family. Okay, that's from a play written 430 years ago in English. The Old Testament was written mm, somewhere two to 3,000 years ago in ancient Hebrew in, in a dialect that no longer exists. Do you think we might have some problems at times understanding what it's saying? Does it make sense that we might have to put in some effort? And I would say, yeah, that's totally normal. That, that we should have to put in some effort to understand what God is communicating through God's story. There's this idea out there, I don't know where it comes from, that I should just be able to pick this book up and get everything that it says. It's not like that in any sphere of life. I have a daughter who's in thermodynamics, I think. I mostly try and listen. Um, but man, when she starts talking about this kind of stuff, it's like, woo, they're talking about flow of stuff and I don't know. And if I picked up her textbook on thermodynamics, do you think I'd have a clue what it's talking about? I'm not comparing the Old Testament to some kind of science that's way over our head, but it, it is a story that's from a different time and a different place. And at its core, even if we don't believe God exists, there's something that people do agree upon, even if they don't believe in God. And that is that it's an amazing story. It's an amazing piece of, of, of literature. And for those of us who, who believe that it's the inspired word of God, that it's important that we would understand what it is, that, that it's God's story, but it does require that we put in some effort in understanding God's story. And at times, it's going to be challenging. And you're like, why are you starting this way? Because this week in the live it out is when it starts to get hard. This week, we're going to be reading through some law code. And that's where the book of Exodus starts to grind. It's like, okay, now they lost me. I got the narrative. I get the big picture. I understand kind of where you're going. But now you're talking about all kinds of stuff that's just going over my head. And here's our encouragement. Don't give up. Don't give up. 
keep going. And sometime in the next year, it'll all come together, okay? I'm not saying it's going to come together this week for you. I'm not saying that it's going to be easy this week, that you're going to go and, oh, okay, it all makes sense. But if you don't build foundation, you're, you're not going to have anything to build upon. And so um, we're, we're actually going to be taking a break. We're going to be in Mark's gospel for June and July. And already in those, this is just for free, all right? Just right now, just, you know, off the top of my head. This week. Read that opening chapter. It's not part of the live it out. It's not an assignment or anything. Just read the opening chapter. And, and you should be, the, the dots should already be going. It'll be like, oh, that sounds like Exodus. Oh, that sounds like Exodus. It's right there in front of your face. And if you don't, you're like, I don't see it. Send me an email. I'll, I'll make the link for you. What? 40 years, 40 days. There's one right there. Oh, through the water. Oh, that sounds like the Exodus. Those are the links that we have that we can connect if we know God's story. And so the the encouragement, that that whole diatribe was just to get you to read the story. Here's what we're going to actually take away this week. As we look at this this transition here into chapter 3, we're going to see this principle about God. God works through people to bring rescue and blessing. God works through people to bring rescue and blessing to other people. People, it's the way God works. It's the way God works in in the Old Testament. It's the way God works in the New Testament. That ultimately, for those of us who have new life in Christ, we know that it's, it's through Jesus that we experience God's rescue to be made right with God, to be a new creation in Christ in order that we can bring that to other people. That that is God's purpose for the church. It's for God's people that we would bring rescue and blessing to the world. That's our story. And that was God's purpose for a guy by the name of Moses. So um, last weekend, we we left off at the end of uh, chapter 2, In verses 24 and 25, they said, and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob and God saw the people of Israel and God knew. That brings us, it's a a close to that section and we begin a new literary unit and and it actually goes through chapter four. Um, We're gonna cover it over the next four weeks. Picking up in chapter three and verse one, it says, now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. We're gonna stop and make some comments along the way. Underline uh, Jethro there, and, and if you were paying attention last week, in chapter two, verse 18, there was the daughters of this guy by the name of Ruel that Moses met, and uh, so now we have two names, for Moses' father-in-law, Ruel and Jethro. So what do we do with that? And this is one of those things that, that if you're into Bible study, you can go down that rabbit hole for days and find no solution, all right? So I'm gonna save you the time because you're gonna pick up three different resources and they're gonna give you three different explanations why there's a difference to the name because there's, there's lots of possibilities. But in in Trying to solve that equation, there's no like, this is the right answer. So it's either there was a first name and a last name, or it has to do with the fact that that he was a a member of the priestly order of the tribe of, of the Midianites. We don't really know. It's actually not the last name that he's going to be referred to through the Torah. 
There's actually another name that he'll be named later on as well. And so he's actually referred to by three names. And it's one of those things that we just can't know for sure. And then we come to this next piece. And he led his flock, so he's a shepherd, to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Circle Horeb in the margin of your Bible or in your journal, write Sinai. That word Horeb, it just means the desert or the de- place of desolation, and it refers to a region. And so this could be specifically a mountain or a region in which Sinai exists. And, and Sinai, the exact location, there's traditional uh, locations and there's alternate locations, but it's one of those things you've heard throughout this series that nobody knows for sure, no matter what YouTube says, nobody knows for sure where Sinai is. There's, there's theories, but it's not important to God's story that we would be able to go there and prove it. And that has to do with our modern mindset. That's our cultural issue. It's our cultural problem that if we think that if we can't find an, a, a link to um, archaeology, then, then it can't possibly be true. That's our broken view of the world. That's not a broken part of God's story, okay? So it must be not that significant to God's story that we would be able to go to Sinai today. Because why? Because those of you who just got back from Israel, you know this. Every place that, that Jesus went where we know where Jesus was, we've mucked it up, man. We have we built a church on it. We've commercialized it. We've made it into a tourist Trap, I mean, that's what we do. Do you imagine if we actually knew where Sinai was, what we would do to that? We would mess it up because we missed the point of the story. It's not about the place, it's about the person and the encounter that happens there. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called out to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the Cried, the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. As you walk away, here's the thing to remember. God works through people to bring rescue and blessing to people. It's the way God works. It's what he does. 
Now, as, as, we, as we continue this week, each week we're reminding you that Exodus is theological narrative. And that means it's teaching us about who God is. And, and through this series, on Fridays, we're watching the Torah series from the Bible Project. And so we've, we've been through Genesis. We're now in Exodus. In, the, in that, we're going to continue through the, the first five books of the Bible over the next few weeks. We'll finish all that. But here's, here's the thing. As much as we love the Bible Project, the one concern as we have these videos that you have to remind yourself of as you watch them is they focus in on Bible characters, and we want to do that too, but at the same time, we want to hold in greater tension with which those videos hold. We want to hold in tension that God is driving the story. If you've been reading Exodus, it should be leaping out at you that it's then the Lord did, and then the Lord said, and then the Lord said, and then God did, and then God did. It, it, it is God's story, and God is driving the action. And that means it's revealing things about who God is. And so that's the question. What does this teach us about God? Not about Moses, and not about the Pharaoh, and not about um, the, the characters that we're going to meet along the way. Yeah, we, we can learn principles. Yes, that's okay. But ultimately, it's, it's a theological story. And that means, what is this teaching me about God? What are the, the principles about who God is and God's character and how he works in the world? And so as we consider these truths about who God is, the next question is, what does that mean for a follower of Jesus today? And often, people don't want to put in the work. That's the only way I know how to say it, okay? We don't want to put in the work to take and work this process of going, if that's true about who God is, how then shall I live in light of that? What we end up doing is just moralizing the text. And here's what I mean by this. We just turn it into do this, don't do that. And if it's about do this, don't do that, then we end up missing out on the point of God's story. We end up missing out about learning about God and his character and who he is and then going, okay, I have to live in the midst of the mess of following Jesus when it's not about do this and don't do that. It's about being a person transformed by the Holy Spirit in order to look more like Christ and live in relationship with God in this world. And that isn't a do this, don't do that kind of life. It's a life based in relationship. And so the first question we're going to take a look at here at the beginning of verse 2, it says, and the angel of the Lord appeared. And um, this is the question. Who is the angel of the Lord? It's one of those things that, that scholars like to talk about. Who is the angel of the Lord? And one of the things that messes us up is um, just, just when you leave today, just, you know, in, in Google, hit angels. And look at all the images that come up. Every single one of them is some kind of winged, creepy-looking character, okay? I, it's just the way that our culture depicts angels, when in fact, the, the messengers that we encounter in the scriptures, they don't have wings. And you're going to talk about what, are the, what, about the seraph, what about the seraphim and the cherubim? Different parts of of God's heavenly realm, okay? So you have messengers, you have seraphim, you have cherubim, and they all have different roles in God's heavenly realm. And we just lump them all into one thing. But when we see messengers, angels show up, they look like 
people. Most often, most often they look like male people. They, they look like guys, okay? And then you look at our cultural representation and most angels look like women with wings. I don't know how we get from here to there, but it's what we do. And so you need to put that out of your mind. So a better question is, who is the messenger of Yahweh? Who's the messenger of Yahweh? Who's the messenger that has shown up here? And the way that this is presented, it sounds like this is Yahweh himself. This isn't just um, uh, some random kind of angel. This is the angel of Yahweh. Uh, uh, the messenger of Yahweh appeared, and then it's God speaking. So it appears like this is Yahweh himself. Now, the book of Genesis has given us some examples of, human, um, of humans encountering the angel of the Lord or the messenger of Yahweh. And, and it's a very personal kind of thing. And, and in Genesis, uh, already in chapter 16, as, as Hagar encounters the angel of the Lord, there's no doubt like, that, that she had some kind of encounter in a personal kind of way where it says that, that um, she called on the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are God of seeing, for she said, truly, I have seen him who looks after me. She somehow, some way, she had an encounter with a physical manifestation of the very personal God of the Bible. And then we see the same thing happen as, as Abraham has gone up on the mountain to offer his son Isaac in, in Genesis chapter 22, where it says that the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. So here we have the messenger of the Lord equated with the Lord, okay? So you have the messenger of Yahweh is Yahweh. And then we see the same thing happen in Genesis chapter 32, where Jacob wrestles with, it says a man, that there was a man and Jacob wrestles all night with the man. And then that man is equated with Yahweh himself. So as readers, when, when we hit this right here, we're like, okay, I'm expecting who to show up. When it says the messenger of Yahweh, I'm expecting a man to be on the scene. But all of a sudden it's like, whoa, it's not a man. There's a flame within a bush that isn't consumed. So all of a sudden we say, this is different. This is a different pattern. This is a different thing. So now, now here comes the debated part. As we would talk about this, this manifestation of Yahweh, that there's a physical manifestation in some way, shape, or form, the word for that is theophany. And, and you'd be like, well, is it important that I would understand that word? And I'm gonna suggest to you, yes, you should understand that word. That just means a physical representation of God before Jesus existed as a man, okay? So in the Old Testament where God shows up, it's called a theophany, but I wanna suggest here that this is actually something we might call a Christophany, which is a pre-incarnate Christ. Before Jesus was born, Jesus already existed as the eternal word of God that, that we would be able to say that, that he existed forever, he wasn't created, that he existed as the word of God forever, that God has eternally existed as one God, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that that, that, that is something that we believe that God has forever, he didn't change, that he's one God, eternally existing in three persons, and it looks like here, like this is the word of God coming to 
Moses, and so I would say it this way, that Jesus is already at work in God's story. And here's how we make that connection. God's gonna, we're gonna talk about God's personal name again next week. We've talked about that a few times, that God's personal name is Yahweh. And, and, the, and every time that it shows up in your Old Testament, it's translated as Lord in small caps, Lord. It, it's God's personal name. And when he becomes a man through the incarnation of Christ in the New Testament, his name becomes Yahweh is salvation. So the Yahweh of the Old Testament is Yahweh is salvation in the New Testament. There's not a new God who shows up in the New Testament. And it's Huge that we would know that. So if somebody were to say to you, well, I, you know what? I, I don't really like the Old Testament because that seems like an angry God, but I really like Jesus. You'd be like, well, then you don't like Jesus because Jesus is Yahweh incarnate. And so you can't say, I don't like Yahweh, but I like Yahweh in the flesh. It doesn't work that way. And so it's important. You'd be like, wow, this seems, it's important that as followers of Jesus, we would know that. And that all of a sudden makes Exodus really, really important to us as a foundation of who God is. Now, there's going to be people that are going to push back on that. You, you may read other people who go, wow, that minimizes the incarnation in the future, that it, yeah, that's kind of true, but it's maybe a type. I'm going to go, no, it is a pre-incarnate Jesus who's, who's in the bush, who wrestled with Jacob who showed up to Hagar, who said, Abraham, don't do it. Yahweh in the flesh. And it's amazing because all of a sudden, I don't have to try and reconcile these two books where it's like, okay, I, I don't understand how this Old Testament thing applies. If I understand that this is Jesus already at work, it makes this story more relevant. And here's what we see in Exodus chapter three. God is both completely holy and totally personal. And that's true about the God of the Old Testament. And that's true about Jesus. And here's the tension, okay? Here's the tension. We have to hold both of these truths in tension. And here's, just generally, we fall down in one of two directions. If we talk about God being completely holy, and that word just means set apartness, that God is completely other, that he is completely set apart. If we just think about God in that realm, he seems very impersonal. He seems very distant. Like I could never approach him. I could never, I could never ever live up to the standard that he has for me. And that's true. You can never live up to the standard of a perfect and holy God. That's why he's given you a perfect and holy savior that can stand in your place. Okay, and we're like, yeah, so yes, God's perfection and holiness is only able to be approached through Christ. And he's also very personal. And so people go, well, I wanna kind of avoid that holiness part. I wanna embrace the personal part. And it ends up with this Jesus is my homeboy kind of mentality. Like me and Jesus, we're bros. Jesus is my best friend. We're so tight, me and Jesus. Jesus doesn't care how I live my life because it doesn't really matter because me and Jesus are tight. And, and that's a problem. Because Jesus' followers in the New Testament, when, they're, when Jesus says, who do you say that I am? My Lord and my God. And so if people are to say, well, who's Jesus to you? The answer probably shouldn't be like, oh yeah, we're tight. He's my homeboy. 
should probably be like, he's my God and my friend. Hold it in the tension that, that we see here as Moses is, is in kind of like this flaming bush and it's not consumed and what's going on there? And God says, hey, take off your shoes because you have come into an area that is set apart. Now, this is just for fun and for free. There's no longer a place like Sinai where God's presence requires that you take your shoes off. So leave your shoes on, okay? Keep them on. <laughs> Keep your shoes on. All right. So through this story, God's presence is represented. We see this throughout the book of Exodus. The fire represents the presence of God. And here, the fire represents the purifying presence of God. We'll see that through the rest of this story. And in fact, this week, I was talking to Tim this week. He's like, we were working on the live it out. And he's like, it's almost like we planned that this encounter with Moses was gonna correspond to the children of Israel's encounter with God at Sinai. He's like, they totally go together. It's almost like we planned it. I'm like, that's amazing because we had no idea what we're doing. We just like laid it out. But it is, it's an ex- it's like if you're paying attention here and as you listen this week, it is that as they go to Sinai, this is the same place The mountain of God is the same place where Moses was commissioned, is where he leads the children of Israel, where they encounter God, where they're given the covenant, where the flame comes down upon the mountain, and where they're led through the the fire, through the smoke, through the cloud. Like This is God's physical presence. It's the physical manifestation of the presence of God. And, And there's something significant that happens here because we see that while he's completely holy, that Moses over time develops a relationship with God that's a face to face kind of relationship. That that phrase face to face. That's 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 an intimate kind of relationship. It's a I can look in your eyes kind of relationship. It's the kind of relationships that take people like me and freak us out uh, kind of relationship. You know, like the, the, the eye-to-eye, face-to-face kind of thing. It's very personal. Now, what he says to Moses requires faith because Moses is like, who am I? And, and I wanna give Moses the benefit of the doubt. We've already read ahead in the story. We know that he questions God. We're gonna see that over the next few weeks that he questions God over and over again, tries the patience of God. But, but in this first question, it is a legitimate question as he says, who am I? Because he's a shepherd. And we know from the book of Genesis that the Egyptians thought very poorly of shepherds. They, they, they thought that they were, um, yeah, they couldn't even be around them. And they thought they were an abomination. And so he's like, who am I? Besides the fact that he's, he's on the run, it's been, you know, maybe 40 years since he's been there, but... I'm on the run. If I go back there, what are they going to do to me? Why would you pick me? Of all the people you could pick, why would you send me? And God's response is interesting. It's like, after you've done all that I told you to do, then you'll know that it's me. This is different than the way we often think. We want God to give us 17 signs before we do it. And God's like, how are you going to know? Because you're going to know it's me when it's all done. Okay. I I think I'm in the Moses camp there. I think I start to ask more questions. But the point of at the end of this, it's interesting. It says, you shall serve God on this mountain and that you shall serve God is worship, 
okay? When you see that serve God, that's worship. You shall come here and worship God on this mountain. And, and then we see this week in our reading that that happens. God brings confirmation that that's gonna happen. And, and here's, here's what we see through all of human history, that God's calling people to join his kingdom through right worship. The way that we become part of God's people, God's family, there's lots of metaphors that the Bible uses to describe this kind of relationship. God's people, um, God's flock, God's bride in the New Testament. There's all kinds of metaphor that's used to describe the relationship to, to God and humanity that have had their brokenness restored through Christ. Ultimately, it's about broken worship being made right. It's the restoration back from the beginning of God's story of broken worship brought on by rebellion. As people inserted themselves into God's place, as, as the, the worship of God was replaced with the worship of self, and the only way that we have right worship, that worship is restored and we become members of, of God's kingdom, we become citizens of heaven that we talked about back in Ephesians, that we become part of God's people is through right worship. And the only way to enter into right worship is to follow the path God has given. Here in Exodus, it's following God to the mountain of God and encountering God on that mountain and embracing the covenant that God has for the children of Israel. For us, it's encountering Jesus, recognizing that we are broken and we need to trade our broken lives for Jesus' perfect life. It's still the same. It's still going to the mountain of God. And in that mountain of God is a person. His name is Jesus, that we would encounter him in a very personal kind of way. A, a personal encounter with God demands a response. And so ultimately, this is the good news that Jesus proclaims. Jesus proclaims that the kingdom of God is here. This is the message through, through all of scripture it's already emerging here in the Exodus that, that if you're going to be right with God, it requires that you be a person who encounters God's plan, follow God's path, that you would be put, place yourself under the rule and reign of God. That's called the kingdom of God. That you would embrace the rule and reign of God very personally. Mark records this at the beginning of his gospel. If you're gonna say, hey, what was the message of Jesus? Mark says this, this at the beginning of his gospel. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, the good news of God, and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel or believe in the good news. Hey, the time has come. The good news of God is here. He's on the scene instead of, and we'll talk about that in this series this summer, instead of embracing the good news of the Roman Empire and that Caesar is in control, instead embrace the good news that Jesus has come bringing the kingdom of God to all humanity. 
And what we see is that Luke talks about the same thing, is Jesus is, is trying to flee from a group of people that are trying to, to hold on to him. He, he's done a lot of really cool things, and he says, hey, I'm going to leave. And they're like, no, don't go. And Jesus says this in Luke chapter 4, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. His purpose was to what? To declare the good news of the kingdom of God, that for those who, who stop following themselves and turn to follow in Christ, there's an opportunity for new life to be part of God's kingdom. You're actually going to read about this this week. As you talk about the laws and all those things that are going to be overwhelming to you, and at the bottom of your handout, things you need to know as you read, you can, you can read those, but in the second one, it talks about all the laws in this section are set in the context of God's explanation of Israel's role, identity, and mission. And and what it's talking about there is Israel being set apart to be a kingdom of priests to the nations. And then in the New Testament, what are we told? That the church is what? A kingdom of priests to the nations. It's our job. To what? To bring the good news of the kingdom of God into people's lives. And that is the only way that they experience God's rescue and God's blessing. The only way that people can be rescued from sin is by embracing the good news of the kingdom of God that Jesus has given life. And so that's gonna be the driving question. What we're gonna do now is is just drive to two questions. And the first question that that I want you to ask is, am I part of the kingdom of God? Am I part of the kingdom of God? Have you given your life to following Christ? And if the answer to that is no, the next question doesn't matter. That's the question that we have to resolve. We have to resolve, am I part of the kingdom of God? Has my relationship with God been established through Christ? And if that hasn't happened, I'm gonna give you an opportunity in a moment to pray a prayer with me and to declare, okay, I'm ready to follow Jesus. I'm ready to give my life to following Christ, to be part of the kingdom of God. And then for those of us who, who have already embraced that, that we are part of the God, God's kingdom, we, we have new life in Christ, we're gonna ask the second question. And that is, this week, who needs to experience rescue or blessing? And in my life this week, and we're gonna ask Jesus to bring to mind who's a person, maybe they know Jesus, maybe they don't know Jesus, but, but they need to either experience God's rescue or blessing, or they need to experience rescue or blessing, and it's likely that person that's already come to your mind. Maybe it's the most annoying person in your life. Maybe it's somebody in your house. Maybe it's somebody at work. Maybe it's somebody at school. Maybe it's somebody that that you're like, oh, wow, that person lives on the other side of the country, but they need to experience the goodness of God this week through me. But now what I wanna do is I wanna give you a chance. If you're not part of God's kingdom, I I wanna give you a chance to pray this prayer with me. So I'm gonna ask you to pray with me. Father, I confess that, that I and broken by sin, and I need rescue. And so I turn to you, I turn to Jesus, I give my life to following Christ and and, and accept the life that only he can give. It's in his name that I pray, amen. If you prayed that prayer, I wanna encourage you on the bottom of your bulletin, there's a, 
there's a handout uh, on the bottom of your handout on that connection card. Tear that out. Put your name on the front. Check the box on the back. Put it in one of our offering boxes. Give it to somebody on your campus, in your venue, and, and let people know that I've decided to follow Jesus. For the rest of us, right now what I want to do is, is give you a chance in this moment, in all of our venues, give you a chance to, to ask the second question. Who this week needs to experience God's rescue or God's blessing through you? So ask God that question. So what I'm gonna ask you to do right now is to to make a commitment to that. God, you've given me a name. This week I will follow through. I will do it. But now what I'm gonna ask you to do is to stand. The God of rescue and blessing is a God who's worthy of our worship. And so as, as people who have come to gather together, let's celebrate that truth. God, in these moments, would you help us by the power of your spirit in us even to worship you in Jesus' name.